What happened after Mary treasured all of these things in her heart? What came next in the Christmas story? What was it? Shepherds came, shepherds saw, shepherds worshipped. Mary, blown away by all these things, treasured all these things in her heart. What happened next? Don't be shy. If you say the wise men, you'd be buying into the cultural idea that the wise men were present the day that Jesus was born, that they presented their gifts, that there were only three of them, and they presented their gifts, and then they went away. In reality, the shepherds saw Jesus, worshipped Jesus, then left to tell everyone what they had seen and heard from the angels and with Mary and Joseph. And then a quiet eight days went by. What happened on the eighth day? Jesus was circumcised and named. Um, Jesus, the Jews have a tradition of naming on the eighth day. The naming on the eighth day was not commanded. It was just the circumcision on the eighth day that was commanded. But Abraham in the Old Testament received his new name from Abram to Abraham the day that he was circumcised. So Jews traditionally give the name on the eighth day as well, the day that they circumcised. So Jesus was circumcised and and named on the eighth day. Then what happened? Another, what would it be, 22 days? No, it would be 32 days later. For a total of 40 days, where did they go? Went to the temple. And there we see the amazing uh, words of Simeon and of Anna and the, these, these prophets, this prophetess, these amazing, uh, a man and woman of God who are able to see the Messiah born as a little baby and worship him and fall down before him and say, this is the one we've been longing for and waiting for. Then at the temple, what did Mary and Joseph offer? Two turtle doves, right? Two pigeons, two turtle doves. Kelly Bunch answered that one like, so incredibly fast at our little Christmas party. Uh, She was studying up, I think, for our our Christmas trivia challenge. Presented in the temple, Jesus was presented, a sacrifice was given, uh, two pigeons or two turtle doves, maybe that's where we get the song for the 12 days of Christmas. Then they went back home. Whether it was home in the, the same guest room that they stayed in, or maybe it was another place in Bethlehem, Wherever it was, that's where they were in a house when the wise men appeared. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. There is so much that we don't know about these wise men. There are things that we know and the things that we know we cling to, but there are so many things that we don't know about these wise men. And I don't want to make conjecture about these things because it's not explicit for us in the text. What is explicit, we're going to take a, a while to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, reads this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship. Of course, because in Jerusalem, that's where the capital is, that's where the king resides. So if a new king is going to be born, then it's going to happen in Jerusalem. So The Magi decide to go to the capital city where the kingdom uh, would rest, where the the king would sit. And so they arrive in Jerusalem, and 
I think Matthew, for the purpose of seeing the juxtaposition, says from the, from the Magi, he has been born king of the Jews. And then verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, the wise men say, we've come to see the king who has been born. So it's obviously not you because you're not a newborn. And Herod the king hears this and he's troubled. And of course he's troubled, but it also says, Matthew records that all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. That's interesting to note. Why would they be troubled? Instead, they should be looking for the birth of the Messiah, but instead they're troubled with Herod at what this could mean. And so Herod gathers together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, where the anointed one, where the king was to be born. He knew that it was supposed to happen. He knew that it was prophesied to happen. He just forgot where. So verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He's going to try and do a little time management here to figure out, wait, is he born yet? Where is he? If he is born, where is it going to be and how old is he going to be? And you know the awful decree that he is going to set out that he will kill all of the male children in Bethlehem two years and younger. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. What a wicked lie. I too want to come and kill him. I don't want to worship him. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew's trying to make the point that they are very happy old wise men. Praise the Lord, the Messiah is here, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And that's not even when they get in the house. That's outside of the house. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. They fell to the ground, prostrate before a, a, not even a day old. Well, that's what the tradition would say, right? Not even culturally that we would think that, oh, it's right here in Bethlehem. They're falling down before a little swaddled, maybe two-year-old baby. So anywhere between 41 to two years old is probably where Jesus is at. So somewhere in that age range, and they fall down for a, a little little baby boy that can't speak, that can't put sentences together, can't change his own diaper, maybe is smelly, maybe is still spitting up a little bit here and there. And what do they do? They fall down on their face and they proclaim, this is the king sent by God. This is the Messiah. And then, they opened their treasures, and you know this part. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. There are so many things in this passage that we aren't told specifically about these men by Matthew. We don't know specifically how many there were. 
Uh, the tradition and the cultural tradition is always three because there are three gifts, so they, they think that the three brought their three gifts, and that's why there's three. We don't know if that's the case. Maybe there were 20. Who knows? They were just wise men. They were magi that were all there, and they brought three gifts. That's all we know. We don't know where exactly they came from, whether they came from Babylon, whether they were Arabs. We don't know exactly. We just know that they came from where? What direction? They came from the east. Specifically, where they came from is unimportant compared to the fact that they are not living in Israel. They are not Jews. They are Gentiles coming to worship a Jewish Messiah. We also also aren't told exactly when they arrive. We can deduce, as I said, that it's between Jesus being 41 days old and two years old because Jesus has already been presented in the temple, so it's at least after 40 days, and it's probably somewhere lower than the two-year age range that Herod set to have the male babies uh, killed two years and under. And he was probably highballing it based on what he had uh, ascertained from the wise men. So my guess is it's probably, let's put one year old. Between 41 days and two years, but probably around one. And these men come, and Matthew tells us, even though we, we can't know certain things like how many there were or who they were exactly, where they exactly came from, precise location, or when precisely they arrived, there are certain things that we do know. Number one, we do know that they are Gentiles. They are pagans falling down before a Jewish Messiah. And it's interesting because they know, intellectually, they know pretty much the same thing that the Jews knew, right? In verse 4, Herod gathers all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquires where the Messiah is to be born, and they have an answer. They knew intellectually the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. He's to come. They knew that, and so did the wise men, but already Matthew is giving us a little bit of a lesson here. There's a, there's a knowing, there's a knowledge that condemns, and there's a knowledge that leads to true worship. The knowledge that Herod, through the scribes and chief priests, had led to wanting to kill the Son of God. The knowledge that the wise men had led to wanting to worship him and sacrifice much. Coming from the east, depending on how far away they were, the travel would have been rigorous and it would have cost a good amount of money. Now, if they're giving gold as a present, my guess is they are probably rolling in it, so they're okay to spend that money. But still, they probably paid a little bit of cash to be able to get to Bethlehem. So we know that they are not from Israel. We know that they are Gentiles worshiping a Jewish Messiah. We also know that their knowledge did not stay knowledge. It turned into action and specifically devoted worship. Devoted worship. But of all the things that Matthew wants to zero in on and specify for us explicitly, it isn't where they're from specifically. It isn't what day they arrived specifically or how old Jesus was. He's just a child. All those things Matthew doesn't really want us to know specifically and explicitly. What he does specify seemingly is very strange, and it's the gifts. He specifies that these men, whether it's three or whether it's more, bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why would Matthew specify those gifts? Why wouldn't he just say they brought offerings, they brought gifts, and they laid them before the child and worshiped him? I think it's because Matthew wants us to know the knowledge that these wise men had about who the Messiah was going to be, even more so than the Jews had. And I think it's because Matthew wants us to see, even in a manger 
or in a house where Jesus has grown up a little bit, but still a tiny little baby, that this baby was born for the purpose of something much greater than just a a normal, natural, typical birth. These gifts tell us much. And with the time that we have remaining, I want to look at each gift and what it preaches to us about who Jesus was. The first gift, gold. They brought gold. And it's easy to know why they would bring gold. Gold represents an upstanding person or specifically a king. You don't just throw gold around back then. And they would give gold to Jesus, this child, as an appropriate gift given to a king. Gold is the precious metal of the kings. And here, these men are coming to worship the king of kings, the newborn king. They said it themselves. Where is he, verse 2, who has been born king of the Jews? And so we want to worship him in the style appropriate. We want to give him a gift that's appropriate. We're not going to give him a little in and out card. We're going to give him gold. It's interesting to note that even in this gift, God provides for Mary and Joseph. We know that Mary and Joseph were poor because there are two offerings that are allowed um, or that are commanded when you present your child in the temple after the 40 days. One offering is the two turtle doves or the two pigeons. That's for poor people. There's another offering that you can give if you have it, but Mary and Joseph obviously did not have it, so therefore they give the poor offering. They are poor. They do not have money or a lot of it. And what's going to happen immediately after the Magi leave? What's going to happen? Mary and Joseph are going to leave with the child. They're going to flee to Egypt. That's going to cost money. And I like to think in my own sanctified imagination that they wouldn't have been able to make it had it not been for the gold that was given by the wise men. God provides through this gift. God provides in miraculous ways And God gives to these extremely poor people the gift of gold. It's presented by the wise men to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And though it's presented to a a tiny little child, I think 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 reminds us that he wasn't always a little baby. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Oh, was he ever rich. Jesus lived in in eternity past, in heaven, in a place where the streets are made of gold. If that's what the streets are made of, I bet the entire place is just mind-bogglingly amazing. And he said, I'll give it all away. And even this tiny little box full of gold that the wise men offer as a gift to this baby, this is gold that Jesus himself made that he formed, and that as a little baby, he was holding in existence, keeping all of the molecules together. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and he willingly and gladly and obediently left the throne room of heaven so that he would become poor in order that we would become rich in him. The wise men offer a gift of gold, signifying that Jesus is so much more than a, a little baby. He is the king of kings. 
He is the Lord of lords. And as the Hallelujah Chorus says, He will reign for how long? Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And because of that, we exclaim, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The wise men offer gold. Obviously, it's an appropriate gift for a king. Secondly, they offer frankincense. The word incense is there in the gift, in that word frankincense. It's just incense. It was used in the temple to worship God. It was a part of the meal offerings that were offerings of praise and thanksgiving. I want to read you a portion from Leviticus that tells us a little bit about frankincense. Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now, when, any presence, uh, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it, and then put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Frankincense was used to worship the Lord, to present a pleasing aroma to the Father. And so already this gift opens the window for us to see that Jesus' life would be lived as a sweet-smelling aroma before the Father. He would be doing something that is significant before the Father. And specifically, what would he be doing? We have to go further into when frankincense was used in worship. When frankincense was used, the incense, frankincense, was never mixed with sin or guilt offerings. The meat and the wine offerings were offered for sin, but the incense was never mixed with those sin offerings. It was always to remain pure, it was always to remain sinless, and it was always to remain undefiled. So too, you see the connection. Jesus would live a life that would be a pleasing aroma before the Father, primarily because he would live it in perfection, completely removed from sin, completely removed from any sense of defilement. Jesus himself says that in John chapter 8, verse 29. He says, I always do what the Father desires, and in it I always please him. I always do what he wants, I always do what he desires, and I always please him in what I do. None of us can say that. None of us can say we perfectly obey the Father, but Jesus did perfectly. He also says in John 8, verse 46, when others are coming to him to revile him and to try and uh, take him captive and take him before a court, he says, can you, any of you, prove me guilty of any sin? I've lived my life in front of you. Is there any sin that you can pin on me? And obviously, they went away without any sin to be able to pin on him. Perfect sacrifice. Jesus lived a life of perfection as a sweet-smelling aroma before the Father. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I've been reading in Hebrews during the month of December for my own uh, quiet time in the morning, and I've been seeing so many amazing truths about who Jesus is and was and will be for us. But when we think about frankincense, we, we think about the the office of a priest and how the priest would offer this sweet-smelling aroma before God. That priest was completely defiled, completely sinful, and needed redemption, needed saving, needed cleansing. He himself would have to sacrifice for himself, for his own sin. But Jesus was a priest unlike any other. He was not just a priest. He was not just a high priest. 
He was, in the words of Hebrews, our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was tempted in all the same ways that we are yet without fault. Completely sinless, just like the offering of frankincense was never to be mixed and mingled with any sin or guilt offering. Jesus was completely sinless. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of that knowledge, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest, tempted in all ways, yet without sin. One last passage, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just as the priest would go before God on behalf of the people, so too Jesus, the God-man, goes before the Father on behalf of us sinners and makes intercession for us in perfection. 4, verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is why Jesus had to come and be a baby. He had to come and be born as a human because he had to take our place perfectly as a human substitute. There are other holy beings. The angels are holy. They haven't sinned, but they would not be our perfect substitute as a high priest was a substitute on behalf of man to God. Jesus was the only one that could come as a perfect substitute, perfect 100% man, sinless before the Father, perfectly God, all at the exact same time. So Jesus is king, an offering of gold, an appropriate gift for a king. He is also the perfect, sinless, great high priest who stands before the Father on behalf of sinful man. Just as frankincense was offered before the Father as a sweet-smelling aroma, not mixed or mingled with any of the sin offering or guilt offering, Jesus was that on our behalf. Finally, in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men present the gift of myrrh, this would have been a very strange gift. It's a, myrrh is just a fragrance. It's a perfume, but it's used for specific purposes. John 19, verses 39 through 40, tell us that Nicodemus brought myrrh to wrap Jesus' body after he died. This was a fragrance or a precious perfume that would be wrapped in the embalming process as you would wrap a dead body. For our culture and context, it would be... As if, um, as Ethan is born, our, our little son, as, as he is born, it would be as if somebody came in and gave us a balloon that said, you know, happy first little birthday and happy, happy baby boy and it's a boy and all these happy balloons. And then somebody comes in and 
gives us a coffin. Here you go. What, what, what do we do with that? It would be highly inappropriate and it would absolutely be offensive and strange. But these wise men knew something about the Messiah that many of our Jewish friends still don't want to believe. They knew Isaiah 53, that Jesus would be that suffering servant, that the Messiah would be that suffering servant. They knew Psalm 22, that Jesus would proclaim on the cross, the Messiah would be cut off from the Father and would proclaim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So they offer a gift that reeks of death, that has in it an aura of the fact that he was born to die. And his death would be unlike any death that has ever been died or ever will. His death was significant because his death was dying in the place of sinners like you and me, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we do not see him who was made, or we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death. This gift points to the death of Jesus and and the reality that Jesus, and I always, we say this so quickly, Jesus was born to die, just kind of comes right off our lips. The reality is that when Jesus was born in the incarnation, it's as if he stepped onto death row. He knew that his life was supposed to be lived in perfection and then he would die for the, the sins that you and I have committed, the offenses that we have committed against the holy God. In his incarnation, Jesus willingly, gladly, obediently lived his life as it were on death row, knowing that the death for you and me was coming. Myrrh doesn't always or only just speak to the death of Jesus, but there's something that's interesting that pops up during the death of Jesus. Another aspect of myrrh that I think we need to see before we end our morning together. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave Jesus wine to drink that was mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. They gave him wine that was mixed with gall. My Bible says gall. I don't know if your translations say something different, but gall is just a, a word for something that's bitter, something that's not very tasty. Mark does the job of specifying what it is that was put into his drink that was bitter, that was not tasty. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 23. They brought him, verse 22, they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull, and they tried to give him wine mixed with what? Mixed with myrrh. But he didn't take it. He didn't take it. Mark's 
specifies exactly what this gall was. Gall is just an umbrella term for something bitter, something that was not tasty that was put into this wine. Mark specifies that this was myrrh. They placed myrrh inside of this wine because myrrh not only is a fragrant perfume that can be used in the embalming process, but myrrh is also, it acts as a narcotic. If you drink it, it will dull the pain. And so Jesus is offered this narcotic to dull the pain as he is dying on a cross. They offer it to him perhaps when he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And as he's being nailed, the nails are driven through his hands and his feet and he screams out. Maybe they say, we need to give him something to dull the pain. But Jesus doesn't accept it. It's interesting to note that there is another time towards the end of Jesus' crucifixion that he does accept a drink. Turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. There is a time when he would accept wine or vinegar. But we need to see what happens in between. John chapter 19 verse 28 says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. What was the difference between the first time he was offered something and the second time he was offered something to drink? The first time he had not yet completely satisfied the wrath of God. I still think it's amazing that Jesus made it all the way to the cross to die. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he falls down on the ground and can't even lift himself up. And he says, my soul is troubled and deeply distressed to the point of what? Death. I could die right here staring into the cup of God's wrath. I could die right here, but I won't because I need to get to the cross to bear the wrath of God. We are told that the scourging obviously killed so many of its victims, and I believe Jesus easily could have died with the scourging. We know that he was extremely weak and frail. He was beaten. We know that he needed help from Simon of Cyrene to get the cross all the way to Golgotha. And then as he was nailed onto the tree and they hoist the cross upright and they offer him this wine that's mixed with myrrh to dull the pain, to dull his senses so that he would just lose his life and and finally waste away. Jesus, with a steadfastness of heart, says, I will not take that because I need to experience in its entirety with full consciousness the wrath of God. I need to suffer without any Tylenol, without any Advil, because if I don't suffer the entirety of God's infinite wrath, then there's a drop left for all of humanity to still experience, and a drop of infinite wrath is still how much wrath? It's infinite. And so Jesus says, no, I need to experience in entirety the wrath of God, and I need to be able to be about my senses, have an understanding of what's going on, because I told everyone that no one takes my life from me. Nobody kills me. I lay my life down. And so after accomplishing everything, 
And John tells us, as he's standing there at the foot of the cross, seeing Jesus die, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, now it's done. Now it's done. And I find this section of Scripture so interesting because you know the seven sayings of the cross. You know that Jesus cries out seven times on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Today you will be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. Um, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. M- mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. I look at that list and I see one that just stands out. It's not like the other. It's kind of that Sesame Street game that one of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. These are all so profound, and then there's just this little pithy, I am thirsty. What is that about? Why does Jesus say that? Well, first and foremost, he had to say it because Psalm 69, 21 tells us that it was prophesied the Messiah would say that in his death. But number two, I think that as Jesus has experienced the entirety of the wrath of God, full, furious, righteous wrath of God, and it's done, I think Jesus wants to say something from the cross that all of the moral universe has longed to hear. He wants to declare that it's done, it's finished, it's paid in full. He wants to declare it's over. No more condemnation left to fear. But after being on the cross for six hours, he has no spit in his mouth. Maybe his tongue's a little swollen and he can't speak. And so I think with a voice that maybe only John and a couple other people right in front of him could hear, he just squeaks out, I'm So they bring him something to drink. And as his mouth wraps around the sponge and he gets the juices of the sponge, and I can just kind of see him working around his mouth so that he's able to say with clarity what he has been longing to say, the purpose for which he came. And as he, he drinks this sour wine and kind of rolls it around his mouth, he, he clears his throat and he cries out, a phrase and a word that I think we need to hear and take with us this morning. It is finished. It is finished. There is nothing left for you and me to do to accomplish the wrath of God. It is paid in full. No more debt. The the record of sin against us is canceled. All because Jesus, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, came willingly to this earth lived a perfect sinless life. Not only did we receive pardon and forgiveness of sins because of his death, but we also received complete righteousness because of his life. Lives a perfect life and then dies the death that we deserve in its entirety experiencing the wrath of God, not for one second dulling the pain, but going all the way through so that he can cry out with a loud voice, it is finished and then release his spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Nobody takes his life. He lays it down. What do you think the wise men were thinking when they gave him that gift of myrrh? Do you think that they thought one day he will be offered this, but he won't drink it? Do you think they just thought in a general sense he's going to die and suffer and I don't know exactly for what, but my sins will be a part of it and he will forgive me. Whatever they were thinking, based on the knowledge that they had, led to worship and devotion, led to a giving of gifts to Jesus. Proclaiming, you are king, 
You are sinless. You are a great high priest. And you will suffer one day and die for me. You will suffer one day and die for me. What are the the gifts, in a sense, that we can give back? We don't have gold, frankincense, or myrrh. If anybody does, I'd like to see it because that'd be fun. I think we can take them backwards and think of the gift, the, the appropriate, so what, of who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf. Let's start with myrrh. Myrrh is a symbol of death. Have you died to your sin? Have you died and your life is hidden away in Christ? Can you say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. The death that he died, I died with him. Therefore, it's no longer I who live. Are there, th- are there things about you, are there still things in your life that you cling to and you say, I am the Lord of this aspect and I don't want to die to it. I want to hang on to it. I don't want to cling to it. Is there still sin that you are living in, that you are glorying in, that Jesus died to free you from? Let's collectively as a church offer Jesus the gift of our own death that we would gladly say, I would leave everything in this world behind me to follow after you. And if that means taking up my cross, dying to self daily, and following you, then so be it. Let's also give him the gift of frankincense, as it were, coming before Jesus as our great high priest, living a life that is a pleasing aroma to him, but ultimately knowing that we could never earn salvation. We could never earn the gift of the favor of God that he has so graciously bestowed to us. How do we live in light of the fact that Jesus is our great high priest? Every day we come before him and we plead with him, make intercession for me on behalf of my sinful state before the Father, and I will come boldly into your presence. I will not shrink away in guilt and shame. I stand completely condemnation-free in the presence of a holy God because of Jesus. That's how you glorify the great high priestliness of Jesus Christ. And finally, our gift of gold to him as king is to come before him and and to say, you are Lord, master, king of every area of my life. I will not hold to myself anything dear or cling to anything tightly that you cannot take. Do with me what you will. I am your slave. I have no rights, but I have a good master. Ultimately, the greatest gift of Christmas It's not the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh that the wise men gave. It's not our response of our gift of dying to self, our gift of calling upon Jesus as our great high priest, or our gift of submitting to him as Lord and King and Sovereign. The greatest gift of Christmas is that God would willingly send his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. I pray that as we celebrate Christmas together, the account of these wise men would bring new meaning to our understanding of who Jesus is, his person, his work, his life, his death, and his rule and his reign now as sovereign Lord of the universe. I know for me, not a big fan of the song, We Three Kings. It's always just sounded like some pirate drinking song to me, so I've never really liked it. But there's a a version of it that I do absolutely love, and I love it because it It goes through all of the verses of the gifts and it does it thoroughly and it does it biblically and it does it well. 
And it reminds us that Jesus is God and king and sacrifice, that he came to live the perfect life and die the death that we deserved and rise again with newness of life. And just as sorrowful as the gift of myrrh is in signifying the death of Christ, we get to celebrate because Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive, and he lives to make intercession before the Father on our behalf. And so I want to just ask us to, to listen to this rendition of, of We Three Kings. The words are going to be up on the screen so you can see them. And, and track, track with the singer as, as you hear each line and you hear each word and you remember what the, the gift signifies. And praise the Lord in your own heart, knowing that he is king and God and sacrifice for you, even now.